Thanks, Dan. Good morning, everyone. Well, it is a privilege to be back with you. Uh, let me introduce my family to you with a picture here. Uh, right there in the middle is my wife, Amy. We're coming up on 28 years of marriage. And then, as Ann said, we've been blessed with seven children, our W, Lissy, J.D., Laney, Millie, Ray, and Rush. And by the way, Rush is my ministry partner this weekend. Rush, give away, bud. Glad you're here. Boy, girl, boy, girl, girl, boy, boy, 24, 22, 20, 18, 15, perhaps, 12, and 8. I'm really close on those. I can't promise total accuracy. Now, if you're looking up here, you might be thinking, well, that looks like more than seven. You would be correct. Because right over here is Emily, my son's wife. They got married 18 months ago, and right over here is my son-in-law, Bond. Uh, She is now my daughter's husband. They got married back in September, and uh, my daughter is expecting our granddaughter. Yes, in three weeks, Lord willing, we're going to meet her, so we are super, super excited. Let me give you um, a little bit about my testimony and spiritual background, because it's going to connect to the things that I want to share with you uh, today. Uh, I didn't come from a big Christian family or spiritual background. In fact, when my parents got married, neither one of them were Christians. I grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut, not too far away from you. And uh, my mother was my father's fourth wife. My father was my mother's second husband. And neither one of them knew the Lord when they got married. Uh, I came along a couple years into their marriage. Uh, And their marriage was very quickly falling apart. My mom became so depressed and discouraged. She didn't even want to live anymore. God brought a friend into her life who shared the good news of Jesus with her when she was 30 years old. Told her who God was, how much God loved her, that God had proven his love for her by sending his son Jesus. The grace of God worked in my mom's heart. She repented of her sins. She put her faith in Christ. The Bible says then she was born again. So I was a baby boy, three months old, and I got a brand new mom. Uh, my mom was the first Christian in our family tree. She led my older brother to the Lord. She led uh, me to the Lord when I was a little boy. Now, my dad thought that my mom had become a Jesus freak person. And he, he doubled down on his atheism and on his secularism. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 15. Dad traveled for business. Turns out he had mistresses in different cities where he was traveling. And uh, all of those relationships, the uh, infidelity brought my parents' marriage crashing down. So it was my dad's uh, bad behavior and my parents' divorce. That's the, like the big wound and trauma of my life. Took God a lot of years of bringing me to a place of uh, forgiveness for for what my dad had done. And matter of fact, in our our time after the service in our Sunday school hour, we're going to talk about uh, healing family relationships. And I'm going to tell you more about my dad's story and about my dad's journey. But fast forwarding my part of the story, 2004 was a huge turning point in my life. Amy and I had been married for 10 years, and we had four children, let's say, at that point. And I was a youth pastor for those first 10 years. And as a youth pastor, number one mission of my life is passing my faith to other people's children. So let's say you're the parents and grandparents at the church where I was serving outside Chicago. I want to help your kids follow Jesus. 
So I'm going to pray with your kids. I'm going to read the Bible with your kids. I'm going to take your kids on retreats and mission trips. I'm going to do lock-ins with your junior hires. Horrible idea. <laughs> they don't do those anymore, do they? Aren't they banned? There's some law against those now. You can't. The name itself, lock-in, should tell you this is a bad thing, right? Nobody should be doing these. But we're doing all this stuff with youth. Why? Because we love students. We love young people. We want to see them follow Christ. Great. It was a very special time in our ministry, but the problem was I was praying with other people's kids and I was not praying with mine. I'm reading the Bible with other people's kids. I'm not reading the Bible with mine. I had plans to shepherd and disciple other people's children and no plans to do that with my own children. And that summer, the Lord brought me to this place of, of repentance and brokenness. And as it says in Malachi 4 and Luke 1, I'll show you this in a minute. He, he turned my heart to the ministry of my kids and convicted me that what I had been doing is I had been putting my spiritual opportunities, that would be, for instance, this morning, I'm thrilled to be with you, it's a spiritual opportunity for me, that I had been putting my spiritual opportunities in front of my spiritual responsibilities, the souls that God had entrusted to my care. So for the last 18 years, we've been on this journey of what does it mean to live for Christ starting in our house and then overflowing from there. So what we're going to try to do this morning, I'm going to do a power walk through the Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to go until they, they gong me, okay? Uh, and I'm going to try to show you how God connects two things over and over again. And, and these two things I think we've lost. I think we've disconnected them. The two things God connects over and over in the Bible are your family and his plan for the world. Your family and his plan to impact the world through Christ. Now, when I say your family, I mean your messed up family. My messed up family. Your relationship with your parents if they're living. Raise your hand if you've got a brother and sister somewhere out there in the world. All right, your relationship with your sibling. Your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews. All of those, your, your husband, your wife. All of those relationships... God has a plan to use those relationships to impact the world for Christ. So I hope you uh, follow uh, Pastor Mike's encouragement and you grab one of those uh, outlines. If you didn't, you can pick it up uh, on the way out because I'm going to move through the scriptures. Because I'm going to show you how over and over and over again, God connects our families with his plan to impact the world for Christ. You ready to go? Great. That's awesome. All right. Genesis chapter 1. God makes a man and God makes a woman. Someone tell me the very first words God speaks to the first couple. First word God speaks to the first couple. Go. Oh, there it is. Wow. Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. One of the questions that I ask pastors sometimes is, when was the last time you preached on God's first words to the first couple? I've had some pastors say, I don't know if I've ever preached on that. Now, that's okay, but what I'm trying to say, I think first words are pretty important. In fact, God tells Adam and Eve what he, God, is going to do for the rest of human history. Do you know what God's doing right now? He's filling this earth with his people, with his word, with his worship, with his glory. Well, how is the, so that the new earth will be filled with his people. So how is the earth going to get filled with people? He only made two. Well, he made male and he made female. And he made marriage, and he made family, and he made babies. And one generation is going to raise another generation, is going to raise another generation, and we're going to spread out. 
and we're going to fill the earth with the worship and the word of God. But you go forward in the biblical history to the Noah account, you find the earth is not filled with worship, it's filled with what? It's filled with sin. Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. This is the most wicked time of human history, never to be repeated again. So wicked, in fact, that God and his sovereignty begins again, not with a righteous man, Noah, but with a righteous family. Noah and his wife, three sons, three wives, family of eight. And God gives Noah and his sons a family chore, a family mission, a family assignment to build an ark for a little less than 100 years. You try a family chore for an afternoon. <laughs> Let me know how it goes for you. Now remember, these, these are real people. They're not Bible people. Okay, they're in the Bible. I get that. But they're just as normal people as you are. This is a dad with his sons working together side by side in a mission that God gave them for decades and decades and decades. Okay, Noah and his family uh, step off the ark. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. What does God say? Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Do you think God wants something? He wants the earth filled with his people. Now, when we had our first son, our W, we uh, decorated the nursery uh, with the Noah's Ark theme. So we had the rainbow, and we had the ark, and we had the animals. Now, when Rush came along, our seventh, we found a closet for him. Uh, you know, the first one, you get the, uh, the extra bonus stuff. I love you, pal. I'm glad you're here. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, all, we take the Bible really seriously in our family. So when we decorated the room for our W, our eldest, we had the rainbow, and we had the ark, and we had the animals. But down around the bottom of the room, we painted, like, the land and the mountains and the deluge of water and the floating bodies. Right, the dead floating people. And we explained to our infant son, we have designed your room about the wrath of God against sin where he wipes out everybody and we want this to comfort you while you sleep. <laughs> now, we didn't do that second part, but as I'm painting this room, I'm like, this is a curious Bible history for the children. Like, this is not a happy story, friends. Why are all of our nurseries with this? Okay, it's like the wrath of God. All right, never mind. Let's uh, keep going. Okay, the animals are cute. Let's, uh, let's talk about Abraham. 4,000 years ago, God comes to a man named Abram, Abraham. And, and does God call Abraham to a micro-local mission or to a macro-global mission? Macro-global. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. How do you even think about global missions 4,000 years ago. Today, you can wrap your brain around that, get on an airplane, fly around, send something around on the internet. But, but how could Abraham even conceive of a multinational ministry? Here's how God explains it to him in Genesis 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. He's going to have a global ministry. For I have chosen him so that he'll direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. Abraham, I want to use you to bless the whole world. If you want to be a part of that, you lead your family. 
Your first mission is to help these little ones, these kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews, follow me. Because global missions, we, we each have an individual role to play in praying and sending and going. But God's people have a multi-generational role to play. All right, one book of the Bible down. How many to go, Bible scholars? 65, right on track for that one-ish dismissal. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Uh, is he serious? No, we're going to stick to our general time. Um, Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are vertical in that they have to do with the proper worship of God. The last six commandments are horizontal in that they have to do with proper relationships with people, right? Four commandments, how to follow God. Six commandments, how to get along with the folks. Anybody know the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, 12? Oh, I, you shall love the Lord your God. Partial credit, that's commandment number one. Commandment number five? Honor. Right? Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Absolutely fascinating that God put this one first in the list of horizontal commands. Why not don't murder anybody? Like that, start with that basic, and we'll give you more advanced skills later. No, he, first thing he says, honor your father and mother. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that this is the first moral decision a human being faces in their life. First moral decision a human being faces in their life. You got a three-year-old at home. Don't commit adultery. I'm just not sure the little guy needs to be too worried about that one right now, right? How about honor your mother? You think he's dealing with that? Absolutely. First moral decision a human being faces in their life. Now, confession time. Uh, pastor Mike is a youth pastor. A lot of years, I wasn't quite sure how to handle the second part. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. The Apostle Paul, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, says this is the first commandment with a promise. So it kind of looks like if you honor your parents, God says you're going to live a long time. Can I stand up in front of a group of, a group of teenagers? I see a lot of teenagers here, by the way. Welcome, welcome. Can I say to all these teenagers in the room, hey, if you honor your mom and dad, God promises you're going to live 70, 80, 90 years. It sounds quite right, does it? I mean, a child who dies of accident or dies of illness, we, we Christians never say, well, they didn't honor their parents then, right? So I don't know what that means. So the way I would do it is I'd say, well, honor your father and mother, and if, if you do that, God promises he'll bless you. Now, that's not what it says, but I don't know what that means. So I've got to fuzzy it up and make it nice. You understand? So a pastor friend helped me unlock this. He said the key to unlocking the promise of the fifth commandment is to understand that the Ten Commandments are not just given to individual people, but that in the preamble and postamble of the Ten Commandments, a lot of the U's, the Y-O-U's, are plural Y-O-U's, not singular Y-O-U's. And so all these scriptures that I'm connecting, uh, sharing with you today connect to this promise. Here it is, that if moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas uh, will follow God, and their children and their grandchildren will honor them in the most important way of all, which is by receiving the faith that's passed to them, by following in the footsteps of God. If that happens, then the people of God, the faith community, or in New Testament terms, the Church of Jesus Christ, will live long in the land. Guaranteed. Lock-tight promise from God. What can stop a church if by the grace of God you win your kids and grandkids to Jesus? Answer? Nothing. And friends, Satan and the demons totally understand this gospel principle. Which is why they put so much of their firepower 
against the passing of the faith from one generation to the next. Why they put so much of their firepower against manhood, womanhood, marriage, family, the parent-child relationship. Because they understand that the family is God's engine of multi-generational gospel advance. I was preaching in Russia 10 years ago. Had a pastor tell us about the communist uh, revolution in Russia uh, about 100 years ago now. And it's fascinating. Russia was the Soviet Union was the first nation in, the, in history to pass no-fault divorce as a law. You could divorce your spouse. You didn't need a reason. They said we have to get rid of the family in order to establish the state. The other thing they did is fascinating. They didn't just blow up the churches and make Christianity illegal. They passed a law that said you can keep going to church, but your kids can't. You can't bring your children if you want to go to your cathedral or church or whatever. Because they had a multi-generational vision, which was, hey, you old fuddy-duddy Christians, you'll be dead soon and your kids will be communists. Your kids will be atheists. You see a, multi, a very evil multi-generational vision. I think in the 20th century, in a lot of parts of the Christian church, we lost our multi-generational vision. But I see the Holy Spirit working all over the world now and restoring it. Let's go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This scripture is the one that absolutely transformed my family. This particular passage is a big deal. Uh, Jesus says this is the first and the greatest commandment. We call it the great commandment. So if Jesus says the first and the greatest commandment, it's a biggie, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Here's the purpose of life, to have a love relationship with God and to have his word in your heart. And of course, the message of the Bible is you can't have a love relationship with God. Why? Because of your sin. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So as the grace of God works in our heart, we repent of our sins. We put our faith in Christ. We give him our sin. He gives us our, his righteousness, which is a great trade, right? And now because our sins are forgiven, we can now have this love relationship with God. And growing up in church, this was a familiar passage to me, but I had never kept reading, never continued to see what God says next. Look at this. He now turns our attention to the home to the family. In fact, the very next scripture is for parents and grandparents. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. And then he speaks to parents and grandparents. Teach them diligently to your children. In other words, hey, if, if you want to love me and you've got kids and grandkids, mission number one, help them love me. If you want my word in your heart and you've got kids and grandkids, mission number one, help the grandkids and kids have my word in their heart as well. Now, so far, so good. I'll bet you're right there with me. How many of you, it's the desire of your heart to love God? You fall short every day, but you really want to love him. All right. How many of you want the kids and grandkids, nieces and nephews to love God? Okay, rock on. So, Lord, we are with you. In fact, we want the kids and grandkids to love you more than we love you. We want there to be generational progress. But a good question for God now would be, what do I do? How do I do it? Now, look, we know there's no magic formulas, right? We know there's no guarantees. Do one, two, three. All your kids will follow Jesus. I'm going to talk with you about that more in, in just a moment. But, but it sure would be nice if God would give us a practical action step or just something concrete we could do. And that's actually the very next verse. God tells us exactly where to start 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Mission number one, teach them diligently to your children. Where do we start? Talk about them. Now the them is the word of God, the things of God. Talk about the word of God when you sit at home. This is what changed our family. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Open my book at home with your family. Talk about me at home with your family. Down through the centuries, this has been called family worship. The few moments of the day where sinful, messed up families like ours come together and come into the presence of God to pray and to get a spiritual meal from his book. It's never too late to start family worship. Never too late to restart family worship. Christians down through the centuries have talked about family worship quite differently than, than we today. Let me, uh, I think I've got the slide up there. Yeah, I do. Okay, 1640 in Scotland, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, they, they taught families how to pray and read the Bible at home without killing each other. Okay? They equipped them for, for how to do this. And this is the preamble, the, the directory for family worship, the directions for how to do this, 1640. Uh, I'll read and translate Old English as needed. The assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry, whether there be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. Translation. Uh, pastors, deacons from your church are going to visit your home every now and then to make sure you're praying and reading the Bible with the kids and grandkids. How'd you like that knock the door? If such a family's found... The head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. Sir, you've got to be praying and reading the Bible at home with your kids. Oh, yes, Pastor, I'm going to start right away. And in case of his continuing therein, still not praying and reading the Bible with the kids, he's to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session. I meet the elders and the deacons of the church. Sir, you've got to be praying and reading the Bible at home with your kids. Okay, session, I got the message now. After which reproof, if he's still found to neglect family worship, let it be for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper until he amend. Sir, you can't take communion this week. You're under the discipline of the church. And we say, whoa, 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 time out. Church discipline? We don't do that for anything. And they're doing that. For a lack of family worship in the home sounds very legalistic to me. All right, real quick. Legalism is adding human rules and regulations to the Bible or thinking that you're earning points with God with your obedience. Obeying the Bible is just Christian. Okay, nothing legalistic about that at all. Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Joshua 24, family worships all through the Bible. But you say, whoa, whoa, they're taking this thing pretty seriously. Let, let me explain this to you of why they took it so seriously. Say so they, they believed that uh, uh, God, these churches were radically committed to the global advance of the gospel. They believed that the gospel message began with the souls of the little ones who were entrusted to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in the home. And that God called mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in the home to pray and read the Bible with their kids in the home. So in order to reach the world for Christ, we had to have prayer and open Bibles in every little home. They connected global missions with what, which, with what happened in each little family. And so they would say, sir, if you're not going to pray and read the Bible at home with your kids, maybe you're not on board with the gospel. Maybe you're not on board with the mission of the church. All right, let's fast forward. We're going to go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> it's Malachi, I know. 
Okay, very last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. 400 B.C. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. The end. No more Bible for 400 years. Terrible ending, right? In other words, it can't be over now. In other words, God's promising something. God's promising that the Holy Spirit's going to work in such a way through the ministry of Christ, through the ministry of John the Baptist, that he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their kids and hearts of kids to their fathers. And, And I want to show you that this heart connection between parents and their children is directly connected to God's blessing for his people and directly connected to the advance of the gospel. This is how the Old Testament ends. One of my mentors, Richard Ross, taught me something amazing. He said, this is exactly how the New Testament begins. It's the link. The turning of the parent's heart to the child is the link between the Testaments. If you were going to make a movie of the New Testament, you're going to, uh, every event in the New Testament is going to be in your movie, what would be the first scene of your movie? Somebody tell me the very first thing that happens in the New Testament. God has promised Messiah. You're watching history, watching history, watching history. What happens first thing in the New Testament era? Shout it out. If you're wrong, I'll tell you in front of everybody. (laughs) Help me out. John the Baptist, warm, warm, warm. Jesus is born, colder, 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 but thank you for just participating. Genealogy, partial credit. That's certainly Matthew chapter 1 when I flip the page from Malachi 4, but I want the first event of the New Testament. We were really warm with John. Zachariah. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, here's your movie, right? Dark movie screen. Lights go up. Old man Zachariah. And an angel appears to him. The angel Gabriel appears to Zachariah, who's married to Elizabeth, who will soon be pregnant with John. The angel's words to John the Baptist are the first words of divine revelation since Malachi chapter 4. You understand that? We've had no divine revelation of Scripture since Malachi 4. So the angel's words to John are where God picks up after Malachi 4. He just got done saying, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now listen to the angel speaking to Zechariah. Many of the people of Israel will he, John the Baptist, soon to be growing in your wife's womb, bring back to the Lord their God. Now what's John going to do? Whoops. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Does that sound familiar? It should sound like Malachi 4, because God's just picking up where he left off. Now what's John going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous in order to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If you've been around church, you know that God sent John to get the hearts of the people ready for Jesus. And he did it two ways. But we only talk about one. One thing, he pleaded with people to turn from disobedience to righteousness. Repent. That makes sense, to prepare yourself for Messiah. But he also pleaded with fathers, pleaded with parents, to turn their hearts to their children. Now, what does that have to do with getting people ready for Jesus? Well, when the hearts of parents are turned to the kids and grandkids, 
and the hearts of kids and grandkids are turned to their parents. Everybody's hearts also soft toward Father God, seeking to express his love for us through his son Jesus. But if the hearts of parents are hard to the kids, hearts of kids hard to the parents, everybody's hearts are also hard toward whom? Father God, seeking to express his love for us through his son Jesus. How many of you want the hearts of your kids and grandkids prepared for Messiah? Then you ask God to turn your heart to them. You ask God to make it the number one mission of your life, and it's a lifelong mission, by the way. It doesn't end when your kids leave the house. Ask God to make it the number one mission of your life to help your children safely home to their Father in Heaven. And as your family grows, as grandbabies come, your ministry just expands. There's no retirement, right? you got more souls to care for. Let's talk about Jesus. And Jesus went against the popular and religious culture of his day, and he prioritized children. Have you ever seen a watercolor picture of Jesus and the little children? Right? It's really beautiful. It's a great pose they did. Let me tell you the real history from Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. First thing I want you to notice are Jesus' emotions here. In the watercolor, uh, what, are, what's, what expression does he have on his face in the watercolor that you've seen? He's very smiley, right? With the kids, I'm sure he was very nice with kids. But with the disciples, is he smiley? No, he is indignant. He is righteously upset. He understands his ministry begins with the little ones, and they're standing in his way of ministering to the little ones. I also want you to notice something. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Jesus is a single man. He's not married, correct? And he's also not a parent. He has no biological children. Am I correct? So he's unmarried with no kids. Single guy, no kids. Where's his heart? With the kids. This message I'm sharing with you today, this is not just married people with kids or grandkids. This is all hands on deck. Every single follower of Jesus ought to have his heart for the next generation. I've talked to some friends. They say, I don't like kids very much. To which I say, repent. <laughs> what an unchristlike heart. Now, you may not be very good with kids. I get it. That's a different situation. Right? But all of us should have Christ's heart for the little ones that are in our sphere of influence. And friends, the early church launched with this multi-generational vision. Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus are together uh, for the, on the day of Pentecost. It's not just the disciples. No, Mary is there, Jesus' mother. Jesus' brothers are there. Jesus had four little brothers and at least two younger sisters. You're like, he did? Mark chapter 6, you can go look it up. It lists it there specifically. James is there. James is one of Jesus' little brothers. James became a pastor. James wrote the book of James. Uh, James became, I love thinking about Jesus' younger siblings. James became convinced that his big brother was God. Try that on for size. Remember, they're not Bible people. They're real people. And uh, he was a really good kid. I don't ever remember him doing anything wrong. Actually, I, now that I think about it. But okay, Jesus' family had some struggles along the way. But Holy Spirit falls on the followers of Jesus. They go out and they start preaching the gospel in all these other languages. Peter then goes out and preaches the church's first big evangelistic sermon. His first point is God sent the Messiah and you killed him. 
That was his warm up the crowd opener. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit cuts them through the heart. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And folks, there it is. This is cover to cover in the Bible. How does the gospel move? You, the kids in the world. You, the kids in the world. You, the kids in the world. I think 20th century Christianity, I think in some ways we, we cut the middle piece out. So sermons all over the place began to be, get right with God through Christ and go out there and make a difference. Get right with God through Christ and please volunteer in one of our ministries. I, I, great, I, I love both those points. But, but you see, we skipped the middle piece. Get right with God through Christ. Now, are you a married person? Your spouse is your first ministry for God. Honor your parents. Love your siblings. Do you have children and grandchildren? Your call to make disciples begins with the souls that God has entrusted to your care. And then as a family, would you please volunteer in, in one of our ministries? You see, God created the, the church and the home to partner together like, like two pedals on a bike. Right to advance the gospel. 20th century Christianity, we took our foot off the, the family pedal. We're pedaling the church pedal. Harder and faster than ever before and losing ground because we've stepped back from God's methodology of advancing the gospel, which is a partnership between the church and the home. If, if you really want to dig in on, on that subject, out at the resource table is a book called The Visionary Church, How Your Church Can Strengthen Families. It's a deep dive into this gospel partnership between the church and the home. I want to share one more scripture with you before I lead us into a time of, of prayer. This is 3 John, verse 4. John is one of the disciples, based on the histories that we have, who was not married, um, did not have children. The majority of the disciples were married with their own children, but, um, but not John. John writes this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So when John speaks of children, most likely speaking of um, spiritual children, those he's led to the Lord and shepherded in the faith. But wow, what a true, uh, powerful statement and principle for parents. No greater joy than when our kids are following Christ. And the opposite's also true. No greater sorrow when our kids are far from God. We've done this survey at churches all over the country. Two-thirds of empty nest parents in the church Two-thirds of empty nest parents in the church have at least one adult child far from God. And it's the most painful part of their life. So painful, in fact, they don't talk about it very much. And, of course, they come to church to see all the other perfect, happy people, right? Uh, do me a favor. Would you just look this way and look at those folks sitting in this direction? Just turn your eyes. Stare at them for a moment. Look at them. They are beautiful. Turn your eyes this way. Stare at these folks for just a minute. Yep, yeah, yeah, I know. Look, they have it all together. Seven generations of missionaries right there. Eyes back to me. Everybody's eyes back to me. I want you to know, you're the only messed up family here. Okay? Surrounded by perfect, happy people. I'm sorry that you're the only one, but that's true. Um, it, it's absurd, isn't it? I mean, the way the enemy kind of worms his way in to, to discourage us. Listen, if this is you, and, and you've got a prodigal child, or sibling, or spouse, or parent... It's never too late. 
It's never too late for God to use you as a mom, a dad, a grandma, grandpa. I don't care what's happened. I don't care how far away they lived. It's never too late for God to use you to be a spiritual blessing and encouragement in their life. You never know when the Holy Spirit's going to swoop in and answer decades of prayers for someone's salvation. If you want to do a deep dive on this particular uh, subject, the resources at the table we have are called Never Too Late. All right, Never Too Late. And Rush, uh, after the service, will be out there and, and is able to help, help you with that. But, but having done this, this power walk through God's Word, does it make more sense to you now why Satan and the demons attack your family so ferociously? Because what happens in your little messed up family, what happens in my little messed up family, is directly connected to the advance of the gospel. The family is the base. It's the base of the church. It's the base of the nation. It's the base of culture. The demons strike the base because they know what to do. So I want to um, have that reality in these scriptures. Uh, I'd like to lead us into a time of, of urgent prayer for our families. And I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And I'd like to guide you through uh, a few areas of prayer. You can pray these prayers silently, but I'd really encourage you, if you're sitting next to a friend or family member, that maybe you would whisper your prayers uh, so that they could pray along with you. But the first area of prayer would be this. Is there a marriage in your family that needs a miracle? It could be your parents' marriage. It could be a sibling's marriage, a child's marriage, or your marriage. But that marriage needs a miracle. Would you pray for God to work that miracle of reconciliation right now? Again, pray silently or, or whisper pray. Grab that person next to you and say, let's pray together. Lift up that marriage to the Lord. For others of us this morning, our prayer needs to be one of repentance. That we have not been leading the generations of our family spiritually. We've not been leading with prayer at home. We've not been leading with scripture. We haven't been doing family worship. And this morning the Lord convicted you and called you up into that role of spiritual patriarch or spiritual matriarch in your family. Just go to the Lord right now, confess that, and ask him to strengthen you for a fresh chapter of faithfulness in your ministry to your family. I'd now like us to lift up a family member who's far from the Lord. Could be a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, a grandchild. Maybe this is decades of prayer for this person. Would you pray again in faith and ask the Lord, no matter where they are in the world right now, physically or spiritually, that the Holy Spirit would turn their heart to Christ. Give them the gift of salvation and restore them to relationship with the family. Pray for them right now.
Heavenly Father, all of our families struggle and fall short every day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness through Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have used your word this morning to give us fresh, multi-generational vision as families and as a church. God, that you would uh, just increase our calling for our ministry to the little ones, whether they be our children or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, or just little ones in in our sphere of influence, in our, our neighborhood, in our schools, and here especially in our church. God, I pray for every young person as a part of this church. I pray that every single one of them would repent of their sins, put their faith in Christ, and carry faith in Jesus forward to the next generation and to the ends of the earth. And I thank you, God, for what you're doing around the world, through the generations, even through our hurting families. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.